Welcome to Last Lamb Standing with the Lamb Sisters, Drew and Meg. Each week, Meg covers a topic that is crazy, spooky, goosebump-inducing, or just plain old WTF, while Drew covers subjects that relate in some tenuous nature but is completely real, explained, and sometimes downright scientific. So grab your safety blankets and microscopes and join us on our strangely empirical quest. Good morning, Drew. Good morning. How are you? Pretty good, I guess. It's Sunday. Sunday. It's it's a pretty day outside. It is. Before we get started, I wanted to say that I was so inspired by your your section last episode. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that I went home and I ordered a bunch of eco-friendly things. So I got the straight razor. Uh-huh and safety came, razor safety razor straight razor would be the kind that you unfold right like, like old-timey old-timey barbers yeah, yeah you don't want that <laughs> although i was thinking about it this morning i was like maybe i do want to try that <laughs> and, oh God, no. myself up. <laughs> and I, it came with like a shaving bar uh-huh. and then i ordered some shampoo and conditioner that are the bars that don't come yep. in in plastic packaging yeah i've got to go get a new one today and i was worried that the shampoo would not lather no, they actually lather pretty well. It's Most of like, them do. Yeah, it was way easier than kind of with the normal shampoo. Mm-hmm. It was literally like swish around your hand and it and it makes it really lathery. But I will say that end result, I'm very happy with it. Good. I feel like my hair has more volume mm-hmm. now and it's not like weighted down. Oh, maybe I do need that one. Oh, and I got everybody bamboo toothbrushes. Oh, good. And then Beatrice knocked Bibs into the toilet immediately. <laughs> quote uh, on accident right Uh and and shockingly john has agreed to use a bamboo toothbrush nice yeah like we said the last time it's the convenience thing that's it really is the crux of all of our issues really are what's convenient versus but also i feel like if laws were passed for it like i know in sweden they are so diligent about Mm -hmm. recycling they have to keep they have to keep all of their batteries and and they have to they have separate recyclings for everything. Yeah. So they have to keep their glass in one thing, batteries in another, plastic in another. Yep. And that's how and but they're required to. And if you don't, I think you might get fined. You or get fined like that. or ticketed and um they do it in some cities in the states. New York, you would get ticketed if you use the wrong, you know, if they actually call you using the wrong type bags. You have to put your cycling in one type bag and trash in another and but yeah, there are other cities that you can get fined in the States. I feel like the South is always the last always to catch on. behind on that, except for Austin. Right. <laughs> Which has curbside compost. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I really like that um, our oldest sister lives in Wilmington, Delaware. And she said that Delaware recently passed a law in the last year that nobody can use plastic, plastic bags. bags. And I forgot when I went to visit her, we went to a Michael store for some supplies. Yeah. And the woman's checking me out. But she's not putting it in a bag. And I'm like, I'm like, what is happening? And it took me about a minute to be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> no plastic bags. So what did you do? You just had to hand carry it out because you didn't have a bag? No, or... so they do have paper bags, okay. but you have to specifically ask for it because they're okay. assuming you're bringing your own bags. Right. And Sarah okay. had forgotten as well. So we just got a paper bag. 
but then remembered every time we went to another store to bring in our, our reusable bags. Yeah. That's also a huge thing. Cause I'll go run to the store and I'm like, oh, you have your recycle, your reusable bags in the car mm -hmm. and you use them you use and them. you bring them inside and, <laughs> and then you, you forget, forget to put them back in yes. your car. Yeah. It's very irritating. Yeah. Anyway. So I just want to say I was very inspired by your bit. All right. Last week. Do you want to do uh, tidbits? tidbits? Why don't you do yours first? Because mine kind of leads into. Okay, the good. Okay. I found the cutest animal, cutest animal in the world. Okay. It's only half of a centimeter to a centimeter big. What? And it's a sea slug, which does not sound cute, but it's called a leaf lamb sea oh, slug. Oh my goodness! It looks like a Pokemon. It looks like it's half a succulent, half a little lamb. Oh my god, that is so funny isn't that adorable <gasps> okay so it's i mean teeny tiny obviously it has leaves growing on its back so it's kind of like Are a the, dome shape ish real... or a little bit like a, a, a chunky caterpillar i guess and it has quote-unquote leaves all over its body and then so it looks like a succulent mm -hmm. you picture a little succulent and then put a little white head on the end of the succulent with black antennas that look like the black ears of a lamb <laughs> and then two little black eyes and even looks like two little pink nostrils. nostrils even though it's a sea creature so it doesn't have nostrils but that's what it looks like and and so you picture a little lamb head with a little poof of of wool on top of its head and the little black ears hanging down that's what the face looks like and it is adorable and it eats it grazes and when the little video it actually looks like it's grazing on grass. Oh it's adorable. Um, so it eats the algae. Uh, you can find it off of um, the seas of Japan and Philippines. Okay. And uh, it grazes on the algae. And then it stores up the chloroplast in the algae mm -hmm. in those leaves, quote unquote leaves. And it actually performs photosynthesis. So it's an animal that performs photosynthesis what? to get energy. There's a few of them out there that I can... That I've been able to find, but this one is by far the cutest. Um, so it actually performs photosynthesis to get energy. So the food that it eats doesn't necessarily give it the energy. The food it eats gives it the chloroplast in order to create the energy. That's crazy. Is what it sounds like. Yeah, but it is adorable. So look it up. Leaf sheep. We'll obviously put a picture on um, Instagram because it's adorable. It is really. Cute. I never thought I'd find a sea slug adorable. But I know. It really is. <laughs> new favorite animal oh my gosh most sea slugs look like giant buttholes yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen a sea slug poop oh no it's does it just like look like it's pooping itself out kind again of, yeah <laughs> just, you're like is it pooping or giving birth i'm not quite sure <laughs> oh that's really cute i like it yeah okay my tidbit today is a little story that takes place in Devil's Den, which is a national park located in Arkansas. The theme of it will go with my theme today. But this happened in June of 1946. Um, Eight-year-old Catherine Van Ost from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was ca camping with her parents and her two brothers. She disappeared from the campsite. And so then a large manhunt followed. And they couldn't find her. And a week after she went missing, a 19-year-old volunteer found her up the mountain. He said he called out her name and she walked out of a nearby cave dressed in her swimsuit and said, here I am. 
and he said she was eerily calm. The cave that she was found in was seven air miles and 600 feet up in elevation from the campsite that she went missing. And to get there, she would have had to trek 20 miles on rough terrain with no shoes on. The area she was found in had already been searched twice, once by air and again by volunteers on foot. And despite there being no potable water, she was well hydrated and had not lost any weight. And her mother described her as being utterly serene after she was found. She said she couldn't remember how she got lost or what happened to her. Ooh. (laughs) A week later, you said? A week later. Oh my gosh. And she just comes out. Here I am. I would be so afraid of my daughter. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's like, what has possessed you? And she doesn't remember anything. And I'm sure. Have they tried hypnosis or something? I mean, this is in 1946, so probably oh, not. But oh, apparently sorry. this area, people go missing mm. a lot. Uh, what are you talking about today? I'm talking about the golden record, which is why I was saying your your shirt, Meg's wearing a, a shirt with a record on it today. And I was like, oh, how fitting. The golden record. Is that the one that we sent up in space? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if you couldn't tell, I'm talking about aliens today. And put your seatbelt on because I read another book. <laughs> I'm going to say, we, we have much different approaches to this podcast. <laughs> Meg reads entire books <laughs> and does all of her work early on. She tells me a theme. I wait till the last minute and do my research. <laughs> so Fresh that it's like <laughs> fresh in my brain when we do it. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes, I mean, sometimes I read books, yes, but a lot of times I'll just search around online. Okay, let's start this over. The book is called Incident at Devil's Den, a true story by Terry Lovelace, Esquire. Esquire? Seriously? Yeah, well, he was a lawyer. That's like, I know, but it's like John, he likes to like say he's a doctor and an Esquire. I told, I told my son to start calling John, Dr. John, Uh (laughs) but he wouldn't do it. Uh, He would love it. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so this story spans this man's pretty much his whole life. It's pretty interesting. So I'm just kind of going to go along a timeline and um, talk about his different encounters. Okay, so when he was eight years old, he would have quote unquote nightmares where it would start out, he would see things dashing around the the house and hear voices. And then one specific night he said, and I'm going to quote, out of the darkness stepped four little monkeys. They were gray and only about two feet tall with large yellow eyes. At first, they were kind of funny. All four wore the same broad grin. They had long arms and a tail. They were real monkeys and I was awake. The one closest to me spoke, come with us and we'll have fun. I heard his words in my head, but the monkey's lips never moved. Their faces were all locked in the same eerie grin. It was as if they all wore identical masks. It felt like a standoff for a moment. I considered going with them at first, but where would they take me? Did I go with them last time? I couldn't remember. I was warned against going with strangers, but these monkeys were familiar to me. They still frightened me. Their grins grew less friendly. Rather than a grin, it turned into more of a scary smirk. I could sense they were growing impatient with me. Now the monkey faces were evil. I thought maybe they might jump on me and just take me away. That was my real fear. I was afraid they were going to jump me and take me before I could scream for help. They inched closer until they formed a semicircle around my bed with my back against my bookcase. The monkeys continued to stare at me and smile. The closest one spoke again. Come play with us. We'll have fun and we'll take you back home in just a little while. Like always, his lips never moved. He just grinned. 
I realized these were not my friends and this wasn't right. Then fully awake, I screamed for my mother. I screamed so loud, I woke up the whole household. When the hall light came on, the monkeys vanished in a whirl of, whirl of black shadows. So he's he had been having these nightmares for extended periods of time and his parents didn't believe he was claiming that they were real like there were actually mm-hmm. monkeys in his room and of course his parents did not believe him his sisters made fun of him endlessly and then um finally his dad said okay you know what we're gonna monkey proof your room and he took weather stripping tape and he taped up all the windows mm-hmm. and then um the monkeys never came back after that so then you kind of think okay well he's just a kid having nightmares eight weeks later he was outside during the day, shooting bow and arrow in his backyard, and he saw a... As one does. I, right? I mean, I would. <laughs> his mom was inside. Uh, she had the window open. She was watching her daytime soaps or whatever. Um, and he saw a dark shadow pass over, and so he looks up, and it's a spaceship. And he said it was a large, silver disc-shaped object about 50 feet directly over his head. It made no noise. He said everything in the neighborhood went silent. He couldn't hear the TV. He couldn't hear bugs. He couldn't hear other kids playing, you know, but he had this urge to just lie down in the grass. So he lied down and he stared up at it and he thought it was really beautiful because it was so shiny, like a brand new car. And he, and he was just mesmerized by it. He said the edges curled up, but otherwise it was flat like a pancake and he couldn't see the top, but on the bottom, there was no openings or doorways. He couldn't see any seams or rivets, no exhaust pipes no insignias or numbers printed on it. And the bottom was one seamless piece of shiny metal. And then it kind of wobbled and tilted up at 30 degrees and silently shot off as fast as a bullet. And it was out of sight in one second. And as soon as it was gone, he started, he screamed for his mother. And in his head, he just screamed for his mom, like, mom, come see, you know? But apparently he was screaming on the top of his lungs uncontrollably. And his mom had to shake him to make him stop. Um, and he had asked his mom, his mom even called neighbors to see if they had seen anything in the skies and nobody, nobody had seen anything. And a week after that happened, the nightmares started again. He says, quote, these always began with lights in the sky and shadowy people lurking around the house at night. Then they would take a more sinister turn. Shadowy figures soon grabbed me and I'm carried away by many hands. I was taken away and held down by man-sized bugs that hurt me intelligent six foot tall praying mantis like beings who ignored my pleas. It was impossible to abort the dream. Once the shadowy figures appeared, the dream has to, had to run its course before I could scream. And then he says years, years later, you know, once they were grown ups, his sister told him that they had noticed a marked change in his behavior. After he saw that flying saucer, uh, he started to avoid being outside after dark. And they also had a, a neighbor who was a, an older Asian lady that he'd known his whole life. And she was very nice to them and would bake him treats or whatever. But after that instance, he was afraid of her and wouldn't go near her or talk to her anymore. And this will this will come back later as a reason why. He developed a fear of being out in open spaces. And he developed a fear of doctors or anyone in a lab coat. In that time, it took a whole year for night, for the nightmares to go away. Okay, so three years later, 1966, he's 11, and it's January, and he goes to bed one night, and he falls asleep instantly. And when he opens his eyes, he was sitting upright in his bed, 
and there were multicolored lights, like really bright lights shining in through his window. And there was a mechanical hum in the air. He said it wasn't loud, but it was powerful. Like you feel it in your chest. Mm -hmm. And he said everything in his room was vibrating. And he had little model airplanes on his desk. And one of them just vibrated off the desk and fell to the floor. But he did say that his he wasn't scared. And then he had this kind of just apathetic feeling, like a little bit curious, but didn't really care what it was. Mm -hmm. But he had the urge to to go look. So he got up and he goes and looks outside of the window. And it was a flying saucer, just like the one he'd seen three years before, except this time he could see the top of it. And on the top was a dome, which seemed to be the source of the lights and the hum. And he took a corner, a corner of the drapes and he like tucked it behind the blinds so that he wouldn't have to like hold it open with his hands. And he, he stared out for a couple of minutes, but the lights were so bright that it hurt his eyes. And so once he saw what it was, he said he was satisfied and he just went back to bed. He made a mental note of the drapes being tucked behind the blinds and that his model airplane was on the floor. And he said he went back to bed and he put his head on the pillow and he fell asleep immediately. And when he woke up in the morning, the drapes were still tucked behind the, the blinds and the and the airplane was still on the floor. So that was his confirmation that it had actually happened. And then soon after that, his nightmares returned. The strangers in his room, bug-like men manipulating tools with long, th- thin fingers, his fear of open spaces. But a couple of months later, they subsided. And by the end of the school year, they were all gone. In 1975, um, after high school, he had enlisted in the Air Force. Um, <laughs> what it seems like a terrible choice for well, someone I, who's been haunted by by flying, flying saucers objects i know but he but he was also fascinated with planes but he he never flew planes so he enlisted solely on the the benefits of the gi bill he wanted mm-hmm. to go to college but his family couldn't okay. afford it so mm-hmm. that was his way of going to college so he enlists in the air force and he was trained as an emt and a medic and so in 1975 he was uh working the night shift with his friend toby they worked i guess on base they were in the they were stationed at whiteman air force base in kansas city which also housed a bunch of nuclear weapons so 2 a.m they're playing cards they get a call that a mechanic had fallen off a ladder in one of the missile silos. So they get in the ambulance and they're driving over there. But as they approached the missile silo, they saw a bunch of red flashing lights and about a mile away, there was a roadblock. And so they got to the roadblock. It was freezing outside. And so the guys, the policemen were in their car and they got out and they waved them through. When they got close, they saw a dozen security police vehicles with about 30 guys in M16s. Some were crouched down by their cars, others were running around, while others were just fixed in place staring at something. The captain motioned for them to pull over outside the entry gate. He said, park here, stay off your radio, and stay inside your vehicle. Your patient is walking and talking, but until I authorize it, no one goes in and no one comes out. So he pulls over and parks, and his friend Toby's like, well, I'm not staying in here. I'm going <laughs> to get out go see what's going on. So he gets out, and 10 minutes later, Toby comes back, and he's like, get out the car. You got to come see this. This is crazy. So he gets out the car and he walks over and all of the security police are just standing in place, looking above the missile silo. He looks up and there is a black diamond shaped object hovering in midair about 50 feet over the top of the missile silo. It was a little bigger than a full size van, jet black and shaped like a diamond. Spotlights from the dozen police cars were trained on the object and it appeared to have a matte surface that was non-reflective. 
They looked for wires, engines, propellers, but found nothing. Then it took off at a speed so fast it was out of sight within a second. Um, so after they dropped the patient off, their commanding officer pulled them into his office. And the first thing he wanted to know is if they had written, written anything about the sighting in the report, but they said no. Uh, he looked over the report and he blacked out the times cited in the report all but their departure time. The commanding officer asked them to draw a picture of what they'd seen. He told them that it was an experimental helicopter, although, <laughs> <laughs> although they were like, yeah, we know that's not real. So fast forward two years later, 1977, Toby has this bright idea one day. He's like, we need to go camping. Apparently neither of them had ever been camping in their life before, which I thought was so bizarre. <laughs> bizarre. It's, it's a bizarre buzzard. It's a bizarre. <laughs> bizarre. Uh, once Terry agreed to it, they both became obsessive about it. And it was still cold when they came up with the idea and they were going to go in June. So they had months to think about it and plan it. They were Wait, just to go camping, just to go camping. And they got obsessed about obsessed camping. Yes. <laughs> okay. Like it took over like their brain, okay. you know, like they were just like became obsessed with it and they were carefully like building up their supplies and like making lists and like planning out what they were going to do. And Terry was a, uh, an amateur photographer. So he mm -hmm. was, uh, he wanted to, take pictures of landscapes like Ansel Adams. They had planned so, so much, but the day they left, they were so excited. They started throwing stuff in the car and then they would later realize after they had left that they had forgotten a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Amateurs. I know. So then um, they, they started to, they drove four hours to Devil's Den, Arkansas. And Terry says, quote, from the beginning, we agreed to, oh, I had to put this in because I thought this was hilarious. From the beginning, we agreed to steer clear of the parts campsite. While it provided electricity and restrooms, it was packed with children and other undesirables. <laughs> <laughs> I had heard that campgrounds were overrun with hippie types playing their guitars and singing campfire songs, turning their demon seed children loose on to run amok with firecrackers and playing pranks on the unwary. <laughs> <laughs> but no wonder they hadn't been camping. Air <laughs> camp sites sound terrible. <laughs> So they got there and they drove past the campsite and they started driving up the mountain and they got to a point where there were signs that said, you know, no entry beyond this point while well, they kept going. And then they would get to another like post with chains up that was like only, you know, authorized vehicles beyond this point. They took the chain down and went further and they're kind of off-roading it in his Chevy Impala. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then they finally get to a, like a kind of plateau that, they couldn't really go any further, but they, they turned the corner and they saw this and it was this giant meadow full of wildflowers and it was very picturesque. And so he was like, this is it. This is, this is where we need to be. So they were really excited. They parked the car and then, um, Toby wanted to set up camp before exploring, but Terry convinced him, well, we'll be back in time. Let's just go, you know, take a hike. Um, so they go and take a little hike and they found a Creek to swim in and they swam and then got out and found a little resting spot on a bit of limestone rock. And Terry said, as soon as he sat down there, a wave of drowsiness came over him and he went right to sleep. And the same thing must've happened to Toby because the next thing he knows, Toby is screaming at Terry to wake up because it's dusk and they need to get back to the campsite to set up tent. So they start panicking. They found their way back to the campsite. Toby sets up the tent, Terry's gathering wood. And that's when they realize that they've forgotten like the hatchet, the camping lantern, fuel, the pot, the beans. The 
they and and I forgot to mention they had on their way uh, to the campsite. Terry realized like like three hours into their drive that he had forgotten his camera. The okay. one thing that he wanted to do was take pictures, and he had forgotten his camera at home. Um, so they lit the fire. They they ate what they had, and they blew up their mattresses, and they laid out under the stars, talking. And about an hour later, Terry noticed that all of the noises went silent, and all the crickets and bugs they had heard before were not making noise. And Toby looked over and he saw three lights in a triangle over the Western horizon that were not there a few minutes prior and they were not stars. So Toby was uh, really into space and astronomy and that's what he was studying. And so he knew all about stars and knew which ones should be there. <laughs> which <one shouldn't. laughs> They were really bright and they were equidistant from each other. Mm -hmm. After about 40 minutes of staring at them, the lights began to slowly 40, 40. The lights began to slowly rotate while keeping their equal distance from each other, which suggests... No, nope, try again. <laughs> which suggests <laughs> <laughs> that they're attached to one solid object. Um, it began to ascend higher and the lights got bigger and brighter. It looked like it was getting closer to them and would pass right over them. And the forest was still silent. Then it came to a complete stop over their heads. Terry said that all of his anxiety, all of his emotions left him and they were calm and peaceful lying on their mattresses. Toby decided to use a flashlight to signal the craft. And after he did that, in an instant, a white light, he said the size of a softball beamed down over the dead campfire, which was about eight feet from where they were laying. The light came from the center of the triangle and it sat there about 30 seconds, then shut off. And right after that, a blue laser light came on in the same spot and then darted around the campsite, not like moving, but like flashing on and flashing off like mm -hmm. around the campsite. And after that, they both climbed into their tent, exhausted. He consciously kept all, he wanted to keep all of his clothes on and he wanted to keep his boots on. So he made sure his boots were tied tight and he went to bed. <clears throat> then he woke up by, he was woken by a bright green, yellow and orange flashing lights and the low mechanical hum he had felt in his previous encounters. Uh, his head was really foggy and his entire body was sore and achy and he had to fight it, but he was able to come up on his knees. And then he looked over to Toby, who was already on his knees, peeking out of a little hole he'd unzipped in the tent door, breathing very short and rapid breaths. Terry went to grab the flashlight, but Toby stopped him and said, they're still out there. He noticed that Toby had tears coming down his face and he was trembling. Then he noticed that he was trembling too. He kept asking Toby who was out there, but Toby wouldn't answer. He pushed Toby back a bit so he could look out. He looked out and saw the UFO that hovered about 30 feet off the ground and covered the entire meadow. He could see two sides of it. There were randomly dispersed squares of pa square panels of light on each side. All along the top was a row of larger windows that slanted outward and ran the entire length of both sides. He said it was made of black metallic material and it was matte and not reflective just like the diamond object they had seen above the missile silo. The lights on each point of the triangle shined through a seamless panel that ran from, from the bottom to the top. Then Terry saw the, the figures milling about underneath the craft and he thought there were children. Quote, I whispered to Toby, what the hell are children doing here underneath this giant thing in the middle of the night? There was fear in Toby's voice when he answered, those ain't little kids. Those are not human beings, Terry. They took you too. They hurt us both. Terry, they hurt us. His voice faded to soft sobbing again. I placed my left arm across his shoulder and he leaned against me crying like a child. So then a bright white column of light shone down from the center of the bottom of the craft. He said it was about a diameter of 30 feet. 
And then they watched as these little children sized beings walked uh, two or three at a time into the light. And then they dissolved into nothing. After the last group went into the light, the twinkling lights turned into a solid bright light and the hum went away. The vessel began to rise like a hot air balloon, rotated clockwise about a half a turn, then kept ascending and picking up speed until it was out of sight. Once it was gone, they both re- were able to regain their composure. And then, and it was then that he began to remember what had happened to him on the inside. He remembered being sucked up through the through that light column. He remembered being amazed at the size of the interior. Everything was either white or stainless steel. The ceiling and the wall panels emitted light. He saw they had three flying saucers parked inside. He could see multiple hallways and different levels. There were support structures and unrecognizable symbols etched into the walls. And they were not the only humans on board. He said there were about 50 or 60 other people. So he then looked down at his feet and noticed that his bootlaces were untied. And so he took his boots off and noticed that his socks were on crooked. His body was in severe pain and he felt sick and nauseous, but above all, he was insanely thirsty. So they then, they gulped down whatever water they had and they made a game plan to to get out. And so they grabbed the map, flashlight, and a knife, and they ran to the car as fast as they could, and they left everything behind, and they jetted out of there. Terry had to fight fight sleep to keep driving, and then once the sun came up, his the sunlight was burning his eyes so terribly. They Once they reached a gas station, they pulled over to get something to drink, and he goes into the bathroom, and he looks at himself in the mirror, and he said he had his face was red and really puffy and his eyes were nearly swollen shut. And he found that he had dozens of red sores evenly dispersed all over his body from head to toe. And they itched like crazy. He said his body was badly quote unquote sunburned evenly all over without tan lines. And Toby had the same exact symptoms. So he said on the drive home, he, he realized that he had been set up to be there that night. The idea of camping that came out of nowhere when neither of them had ever been camping before and how it became an obsession for both of them, how they were compelled to go beyond the boundaries of the campsite in the park and off-road to this specific spot. And he looked at Toby and he never wanted to talk to him again. They were best friends, their wives, Mm -hmm. their families, like they spent years together and he knew that nothing would be the same between them again. So they got home. He dropped them off. They didn't say a word to each other. He got home and his wife was like, what is wrong with you? Took his temperature. It was 104, put him in a cold bath and then uh, brought him to the clinic. And apparently Toby was already at the clinic and they had multiple doctors coming in and out and his eyes hurt so bad that he just kept him shut uh, pretty much the whole time. So the doctor asked what had happened and Terry told him everything except for the UFO encounter. Um, because he didn't want to sound crazy. So they, they counted the red spots all over him and there were 124 total red spots on his body. And he heard them bring in a Geiger counter Mm -hmm. and waved it over his body. He could hear the, hear the, the Geiger counter going off. And then the doctor told, gave his wife a biohazard bag and told her to go home and get everything he had brought with him, um, and put it in that bag, uh, two days later, Two men from OSI, the Office of Special Investigations, which apparently is like what NCIS is to the Navy. That's what that is for the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And they set him up in bed and they put on a tape recorder and 
the guy in charge was special agent Gregory. And he made, he like intimidated Terry into signing a bunch of waivers and consent forms, which included letting them search his house and car and seize anything they wanted. And so Terry signed them because he was so intimidated and because he couldn't read anything because his eyes were still swollen. So Gregory interrogated Terry while the other guy left to go search the house. And he made him draw a picture of the meadow, where the car was parked, where the tent was set up, the tree line, the scale of the meadow. But most of all, he wanted every single photo that they had taken there. But he wouldn't believe Terry when he said he had forgotten his camera at home. So he told him he was going to be reassigned the next day to his support staff's position and that Toby was being reassigned to another base. Terry said that even though he knows he would, he should be sad about it, he was actually relieved because he never wanted to see Toby again. Which is weird because when you tr- when you share tragic experiences with people, normally it brings people closer together. But this one drove them apart. I think it only brings you together if it's something that's explainable. <laughs> right. I think when it's unexplainable and neither of you can talk about it. Then yeah. No. Well, it seems to be a pretty common theme in alien encounters is that people will not talk about it. Like they they cannot bring themselves to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things there's that... Is it the, the aliens that are putting that in their brain? You know what I mean? Um, so when Gregory, when the special agent was leaving, he said, you are ordered, this is quote, you are ordered to not leave the base without permission from your CEO or myself. You will not speak with senior airman Tobias or his family. You will not communicate with them in any way. That means no notes or letters. You will not discuss this incident with anyone at your new duty station or disclose the reason for your reassignment. Are you with me, son? Yes, sir. I understand. He added, don't attempt to contact Tobias through a third party either. That means your wife or anyone else. You will not talk about the lights you saw in the sky that night. Not to anyone. That means not your wife, not your priest or your mother. No one. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. I understand everything. I said, he then, then he paused his demeanor changed. And for a minute, he just stared at me. Then he lowered his voice to a whisper. You two knuckleheads stumbled into something that made you very sick. And I think you know what it was. Oh, I think you know what I'm talking about. Don't you, son? I know you do. Before he left the hospital, the senior doctor came in and told him that he had received the burns from exposure to the sun and from naturally occurring radiation from the limestone bluff that they had fallen asleep on by the creek. (laughs) He said that they laid on top of a a uranium deposit and that the red sores were chigger bites. He told Terry that he is going to give him some strong medication that might cause funny dreams. Even months down the line, a funny dream might pop up. It's just a side effect of the medication. If you don't discuss it with anyone, they'll go away. The doctor released him with like with a bunch of pills and instructions on how to take him. He was supposed to take nine pills a day, three after each meal. So Terry, when he was leaving, ran into this nurse. Since he's an EMT, he's there a lot and he knows the people. Mm-hmm. So his favorite nurse... Um, and he said, he ran into her and he said, what, what are these pills? And she said, she didn't know what they were. And they weren't from their pharmacy that they had been sent there, especially from Wright Patterson air base. So he goes home and he starts taking these pills and every night they sent a nurse to his house. And they said that it was all business-like. She never asked how he was feeling or how he was doing. All she wanted to do was count the pills to make sure that he was taking the pills and then she would leave. Since he was an EMT, he had a copy of the physician's desk reference at home that showed pictures of every FDA-approved medication. This one was not in there. And once his, he was home, his memory started to fail him, not just about that night, but about everything. 
he couldn't remember where he put things or what day of week it was. And then Sheila, his wife, made the connection that his memory deterioration started when he's when he began taking the pills. So three days after he started taking the pills, it was a 14 day prescription, he stopped taking them and would flush three after each meal in case the nurse showed up early. Once he stopped taking them, his memory started to return. And then a couple of weeks later, a car had been sent to to pick him up and they brought him to the OSI office. And so he's brought into an interrogation room. He's literally there for hours before anyone comes in. And then when they do, it's Special Agent Gregory, the other guy that was there with him. And then they brought in a third man. His name's Brad. He's a major and he specializes in hypnosis. So they said, we're going to put you under hypnosis. And he said, what if I don't want to? Well, you have to because you signed this consent form in the hospital. So he knew he had no choice. And he was like, well, this is cool. I, I know a little bit about, about hypnosis. I can fake it. Like I can resist it so that he can't um, get into my head. But the problem is, is that they then pulled out some drug uh, injection and they injected him and he didn't know what it was. They wouldn't tell him what it was. So, but he's still, he's still conscious. He's still aware. And he's the major starts bringing him down into hypnosis and he's doing all his bit. And his bit is, you know, we're walking down a flight of stairs. And every time you take a step down, you're going to go, you're going to get two times more relaxed. Right. And so in Terry's head, every time the major is going down, he's taking a step up and he's, he's trying to like, tense muscles in his body that are not obvious so that it's, it's not so that he doesn't get Mm -hmm. relaxed and he's not going into it. And he was successful. He, um, he was able to trick them into thinking that he was under hypnosis. But the problem was, is that he had no, no issues resisting the hypnosis, but a harder time resisting the effects of the drug. And so he was like singing Beatles songs in his head. Like he was trying to do anything to like, keep his mind aware. So he played along with very consciously, but then the drug started to kick in. And then he ended up answering questions. He started to answer questions without thinking about the answer first. The major would ask a question and then Terry would just automatically reply and he'd be like, crap, why am I saying this out loud? You know, like he couldn't control it. So he ended up telling them that the space people had told Toby where to go camping and that they'd been following him his whole life. He said that it was the monkey men from his childhood, but now he could see their actual faces and they were small gray men. He tells Brad about everything he can remember on board and how there were 50 or 60 other human beings. But the thing that comes up now is that he realized that some of them were crew members and they were wearing tan colored flight suits with orange insignias of rank on their shoulders. And when he said that... the alien no, crew members? No, he said that some of the humans were crew members. Oh, the ones that were on the ship. Okay. Correct. He said the small space people controlled them, but there were taller aliens milling about who were obviously in charge. If one of them looks at you, they can know everything about you just by reading your mind. So he avoided eye contact with them. Um, he said they walked him down a hallway lined with aquariums on the wall and inside were reptilian lizard like things floating in pink water, ugly with huge eyes. He saw one of them twitch. He said there were hundreds of them and they looked like humans, but different. Another one moved its head toward him and blinked. And he said, he tells Brad that there's all different kinds of ships, even one bigger than the triangle that can't come to earth because of the size. It's the size of a city. He was shuttled there on a small spacecraft. And he said, quote, the tall ones, the aliens are milling about. There were walkways that move like airport. We were near the moon at that time. There were huge windows that I could see the moon below us. 
It was dark, but I could see the cities below that were lit up. It was a huge city on the surface of the moon. They go there for a special kind of rock. The woman told me they can never fly in front of the moon, the side that faces the earth, because the ship is so big it would be seen from earth. I'm going to pause right here because quick question. I was reading over this this morning. <laughs> Do we only see one side of the moon? Yeah. I don't think I knew that. This is the whole issue of the dark side of the moon. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I wrote my notes in all caps. Do we only see one side of the moon at all times? <laughs> <laughs> I've actually had this conversation a couple of times recently because Grayson and I have been trying to figure out if we're seeing, you know, sometimes we can see the moon during the day. Does that mean on the other side of the earth, they're not seeing the moon at night? And yeah. what does that cycle look like? That, yeah. Well, isn't it that we could, we can technically see the moon at all times? It's just when this... Wait. But how would that be possible no, on opposite yeah, sides of right. the earth? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you I don't need know. To research that. Yeah, I, I will do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the rotation cycle of the moon relative right. to the earth relative to the sun. <laughs> right. So he said that a woman walked with him around for the, on this spaceship and communicated telepathically. She told him that the size of the ship was over 310 miles long and uh, 47 miles tall. She said that they stayed on the other side of the moon, um, but they come from a place very far away where they have two suns and a couple of moons and they never have nighttime, which is weird because they have moons. But two suns. But two suns. So they never have nighttime, so it's easy to grow things, and it's very beautiful. She told him that there are already humans living on the moon for years now. And then Terry heard Brad uh, whisper something to the agents when he said that. And quote, Brad was quick to jump in. Very good. Go ahead, Terry. But you will forget that memory forever. You'll forget all about the moon. Everyone knows there are no people on the moon, Terry. All about the big ship and the moon you will forget. It's gone now. So then Brad brings him back to the incident devil's den and says, and so Terry tells him that once they were on board, the space people started undressing everyone and they brought him into a room and put him on a table where he couldn't move. He wasn't strapped down. He was just immobile. And then quote, my body is limp now. I'm still aware of others around me. They are aliens, not people. The little gray ones are strong. An alien is always supervising. He watches the little ones and orders them around. I don't think the little ones are even alive. They're not living beings. They could be robots. They're having trouble with laces on my boots. I know it's about to start. I'm softly crying again. What's about to start, Terry? The examination. They do medical things that hurt me while I'm on the table. I fill my lungs with air to scream, but nothing comes out again. And so he brought him out of hypnosis and Terry still remembered, remembered everything. And so after that, uh, Gregory told him after the hypnosis, he walked out and he said, just finish out your enlistment and go to college. Um, there's nothing going to go on your record as long as you keep your mouth shut. And then he was able to go back to work as an EMT and he kept his mouth shut. So until now, until now, correct. So <laughs> when was this book? Published? Um, I want to say like 2018. Okay. So the clincher is in 2012, he woke up one morning and he couldn't put any weight on his knee that it hurt so bad. So he went to the hospital and they took two x-rays, one from the front and one from the side. And then apparently they were so confusing that they ended up taking the same shots three more times. So it was a total of eight x-rays. And the doctor had asked him if he had had any kind of shrapnel wound or suffered any kind of accident. And he said, never. They had doctors and radiologists and residents all came in to look at the x-rays and it looked as though there was a small square piece of metal inside of him. 
and it was perfectly symmetrical. And the doctor looked at his knee, but he couldn't find any kind of point of entry of where it would have been implanted. And they even looked at it under black light because if you have a small scar, apparently it shows up under black light and they could find no scar. The doctor said, quote, if you look at the lateral view below your knee, there's a flower petal arrangement of objects the same density as bone. These round artifacts are flat discs, so in the frontal view, they're barely visible. These bones, if they are bones, are not in your knee. They're in the middle of your calf muscle. They're flat and not any type of cyst I'm familiar with. Cysts are round, fluid-filled nodules, and these are discs. Also, bone doesn't spontaneously sprout in the middle of a muscle tissue. It's also odd that they're arranged in such symmetry. So he goes online to look at his medical records a couple days later, and the radiologist report, um, which was dated October 25th, 2012, which is two days after he went to the hospital, acknowledged the object in his knee and referred to them as round artifacts. These are the little petal shaped mm -hmm. bone things, but he didn't mention the square metallic object that was found above his knee. And in the report, it only said impression, abnormal knee, rule out Baker cyst. He asked the doctors if he could have them removed, but the doctor said it wasn't, it's not a necessary surgery. So they wouldn't do it. And then his nightmares came back after that. So a couple months later in March, 2013, he went back online to look at his medical records and found that the radiology, the report from the 25th was gone. And in place of it was another report dated November 7th, which made no mention of either the round artifacts or the metal object. And then it occurred to him that he was at a VA hospital. So the government had uh, access to mm. his records. So in 2017, he made a public appearance about his counter, uh, about his encounter. He was already retired. So <clears throat> he said, what do I have to lose? And after this, a month later, he woke up sitting in his chair in the family room and sitting across from him was what he first thought was a small Asian woman. She wore oversized sunglasses to hide her large almond-shaped eyes and a red scarf to hide her pencil-thin neck. Other than that, she was dressed in all black with long pants and long sleeves that partially covered four long fingers. She had a black wig on, reminiscent of Betty Rubble hairstyle, that sat high askew on top of her head, and he couldn't help but think that the wig looked ridiculous. And immediately, she replied telepathically, so you don't like my hair? It's the same. Same as what? Same as last time we met. He was really scared, but she assured him that he would never be abducted again. And then he wasn't scared at all. And she told him she was there because of his public disclosures and writing and writing a book for publication was worrisome to her hosts and to his government. Quote, Terry, I'm here because you have memories that cannot be permanently suppressed or removed safely from your mind. Because those memories cannot be erased, you intend to tell others to help you manage these unwelcome thoughts. By telling others, you hope to confirm your experiences and make people aware. You know things and you have seen images of things that are crucial to their shared agenda. They are important to both your government and to my hosts. You are not aware of their importance and you can't discern which memories are sensitive and should not be disclosed. To remove them now would cause you great harm. Terry asked, him, asked her about the implant in his leg <clears throat> and asked how many other people had have had them. And she replied that many thousands of people over three generations, she said that he had implants in both of his legs. And if he continued to speak publicly about it, her host will come and remove them. Quote, my host will not allow you to have them removed here and analyzed by terrestrial science for their composition. They won't harm you and you'll experience no pain. They'll remove them from your body while you are sleeping. The government also has interest in you and your devices. The devices have many purposes. The concern among all is that once disclosed, they will support your claims. The government will not allow it. They will first attempt to discredit you. 
And then he said he woke again, he awoke the next morning in his chair. Less than a month later, in November 2017, he woke up with pain in both of his legs between his knee and his groin. A day later, bruises appeared. And in the middle of the bruises um, is what looked like an insect bite. So they took pictures of it and then they enlarged the pictures. And the insect bite is actually in the shape of a perfect square. And on the 18th of November, so two days after this happened, he went to get x-rays of his leg and he found that both metallic objects were gone, but the petal shaped objects below his knees were still there. And he brought the x-rays to a chiropractor and to a friend of his who was a, a, a radiologist. And they both confirmed it was gone, but the chiropractor noticed that there was two small wires where the square object had once been that you could still see. The end. <laughs> <laughs> so much. I know. It's a lot. And I'm sorry. It's, it was so long. I had, to, I had to say it all. I mean, yeah. government is in on it. Yes. I'm what sure are your are. thoughts on aliens? Oh, I believe aliens exist. Whether they're actually coming here to poke and prod us is another question, right? You know, if something's happening at a house and there's only one person in the house experiencing it, that's odd. Why do you think that's odd? Well, because oh, if they're shaking and lights, why would that not wake up other people? Why specifically this kid? Right. So it seems like they have control. One, they have control over like your mind, right? So like different, obviously I've heard about all kinds of different encounters and you can have like, there's been encounters where multiple people see it, but they all see different things. So it's like they can project what they want you to see mm -hmm. to different people, depending on what your brain mm -hmm. either likes or it's because it's like they can present themselves as something that's comfortable to this person, which is different than comfortable to that person. So there was like this one instance, there was like this uh, little an elementary school in Africa that had a mass sighting and all the kids saw it, but the kids relayed different information because they were presenting themselves differently to the, to the kids. Mm -hmm. So it's like they have such control over who sees what and how they see it. You know, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of theories out there, but I think, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, if they're this advanced, why are they even playing with us? Right. <laughs> is some people's thought, but also around that time. And obviously there is a spot in K Kentucky where we, we would have been experimenting with a lot of radioactive materials. Mm -hmm. And so I think they stumbled upon a base, a secret base that was experimenting with radioactive material, whether in conjunction with aliens, I don't know, or did that create, you know, did the exposure create a nightmare situation, a shared, but in this case, a shared nightmare situation, which is possible, um, or were they actually humans that they were seeing, but because of effects, they were thought they were gray aliens. Yeah. I don't know. There's, you know, so many... But yes, I do think aliens exist because the, yeah. the thought that one singular planet in what could be endless, universes. endless amount of universes <laughs> yeah. and, and we're the only living beings is highly improbable. Right. Um, Sometimes I think that we are the experiment of other alien beings. Like, mm -hmm. like they put us sure. here to see how we evolve and that's why they come and like There's do like, tests and stuff. Threw a couple of seeds on the yeah. on, on Earth. They're like, that's fine. This yeah. let's do this like, planet. Throw a couple of seeds right. out there and be like, watch this evolution. It's like experiment. Alien, yeah, it's like alien scientists. Yes. And then um like a snow globe of <laughs> Yeah, which is why science. so like a lot of them there's 
a lot of sightings around nuclear things and there's a lot of sightings or encounters that have happened where they have warned people about the use of nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and trying to resist, you know, trying to tell them to not use nuclear weapons. And I think it's like, because maybe they don't want their experiment to be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's also that theory that our entire universe is actually just a simulation anyway. Right. Or in world, I guess, is a simulation anyway. And maybe the aliens are just like someone's yes. coding that they're yes. like, let's just sprinkle that in and see, see what all the little ant people do. Right. <laughs> Watch them scurry. Yeah, that is, yeah that's like kind of the same thought process, except I have a hard time believing that we are artif- like not a here. Digital simulation Correct. versus yeah. a yeah. science experiment Correct. of real things. Right. Yeah, matter. Yeah, like real matter. Yeah. But yeah. That I, could be fun. I thought that was uh, really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And the object in his knee. Yeah. Also, now I'm like, I love camping now. I'm like, I, I don't know <laughs> I if I want to go. <laughs> I was thinking that at the point, too. I was like, oh, and they never went camping again. <laughs> One and done. Because um, I've actually been thinking recently about camping by myself just to uh, be able to go out and do it. And then I'm um, like, oh, would that be so scary? Yes. Or so or free, so peaceful, right? <laughs> it depends on your mindset. Honestly, if you yeah. start thinking of scary things, it will be scary, right? There is a oh, there was a couple years ago when I went camping with this girl Girl Scout thing, and I was sleeping in your tent, and it was it's a small tent, so it's just enough size for like a queen size blow mattress or whatever. But I was sleeping, and there was like bushes or brush next to me something in the middle of the night was moving around mm-hmm. in the bushes and i was like fuck no i was like oh my god it's like what do i do it's like do i just stay here or do i so i started just like hitting the side of the tent hoping that the noise would like uh-huh. scare it away i'm sure it was like a raccoon right. or you know something yeah. was, but of course my mind goes to all kinds of terrible things <laughs> no definitely raccoon okay so i've talked enough it is your turn. Okay. So um, I, I think my stuff's not going to be terribly interesting after after that. But I did want to do a second tidbit that is related to aliens. Okay. Just because mine is not really very long anyway. You probably didn't see it, but did you see the Jordan Peele movie, Nope, that came out this past summer, I believe? No, I haven't. I haven't seen the movie, but you've heard of the you've heard of it, right? No. I, oh, I okay. Um, it's called Nope. It's a it's a sci-fi horror movie okay. about aliens. Okay. And I heard a piece on NPR about it. The he wanted Jordan Peele wanted it to be extremely the creature to be extremely realistic. And he had something in his head about using sea creatures as as a base idea. And he wanted them to move like something would actually move. So he had uh, engaged a fluid dynamic engineer to to help them figure out how something might move in the sky mm-hmm. but very fluidly yeah. like it would actually be using the f- flow of air and right. stuff for, for moving and then he engaged a biologist to help him figure out what the animal would be made up of or like it, you know if he wanted it to do this is there does that actually exist in the natural world kind of thing i love so, him and he really i feel like he puts a lot of thought into his yeah, obviously movies. yeah yeah like like a lot of what another word is research yeah research, yeah, research but just more so than any other especially for horror films you know right. it's all just about tropes yeah but yeah sorry continue which he he does too but 
I think it, in a weird way. In a weird way, his <laughs> his end up being like I, I remember seeing previews for some of his other movies, and I couldn't quite decide if they were spoofs, right, or actual horror. Yeah, because especially with the names too, like mm-hmm. this name is Nope, as in like they're nope. looking at this thing, they're like Nope, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not dealing with that today. <laughs> I know they just make you really uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Um. So anyway, so I'm not gonna try not to do any spoilers. So the the. UFO or UAP now is what we're calling them, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was based off of like a sand dollar. So it's got kind of a matte finish. It has a circle in the center that is yeah. where, how it's feeding and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it, it camouflages itself similar to a cuttlefish. Uh, and then there's another sea creature I'm not going to tell you about because that would be a spoiler. But there's another sea creature that influences some other parts to it and stuff. And then... The way it digests food, they used it was called a levation, I believe, or the or similar to the way a bird eats, where they uh-huh. eat the whole thing uh-huh. and then it gets digested on the inside, like gets ground yeah. up on the inside. Apparently, there's a scene in the movie where you're actually going through the digestive. Oh, weird track of it, yeah, <laughs> super weird. Anyway, the biologist that that he engaged is now working with him, and I think even the actors, and they are actually putting together a real a, a real fake <laughs> scientific paper like if if someone discovers a species right they they name it and then they write a paper on all of its characteristics mm-hmm. how they found it everything else so they're writing a fake scientific paper on the discovery of this creature how it was discovered how they named it and the name of it is let me pull it up i'm not going to be able to pronounce this you know scientific names Oculonimbus etioquis, which means hidden dark cloud stallion eater, is the name they've given the creature. <laughs> In the movie, they call him, um, they've given him the common name of Jean Jacket. Oh, I'm guessing weird. it has something to do with the way he looks or uh, texture or something like that. I don't know. Hilarious if he wears a Jean Jacket. <laughs> <laughs> but that's his scientific name. So they're going to take that and create an actual fake scientific paper about it and it's going to be published as a, a coffee table book in the style of a nature magazine oh funny which is cute and yeah. I, I like i like the idea of of movies yeah. taking their things further right. into reality right but i just thought that was interesting that they were going to create an actual scientific that's paper fine. based yeah. off of a fake uh, i mean that species just that opens found, yourself up for a lot of other movies and extended merchandising yeah definitely (laughs) always okay so that was my other random tidbit that's fun i need to watch that but the actual thing we're talking about today is the golden record like you mentioned it's the thing that we had sent up in space on voyager one and two and the previous (gasps) spacecraft that were sent out those that were um (laughs) really quickly sorry while you're looking yep it went up in 1977. Uh, that was the same year that this thing happened. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're related. Okay, so so yeah, Voyager 1 and 2 were sent out in 1977. The original missions were to, to explore Jupiter and Saturn. And then once they did that, they went on to do Uranus and Neptune. And then now they're still out there. They're still sending us information. They're actually the first human-made... <laughs> We'll say human-made, um, because who knows what else is out there. Uh, spacecraft that have gone into interstellar space. So they've gone now past th- 
beyond our solar system and are now in the space between solar systems. Okay. I don't know much about space at all. A solar system, so you can have space in between solar systems? Yeah. So our solar system is basically the the amount of space that our sun can control, kind of. Oh. So okay. like the gravitational pull of our sun, yeah. like once you get beyond right. that, you're in kind of interstitial space. Okay. And then another sun and its solar system, oh. another star and its solar system is going to be really far away. So right. it's actually going to take 40,000 years for these the voyagers to there's two of them going in opposite different directions for them to get near another star how do you control like their direction these i don't think they're controlling i think they're letting them just be so how will they know that they will reach another it's in forty thousand years we don't but that's like part of nasa experiments is right right? is we're going to get as much as we can and then we'll see what else we can gain from it this is the longest running experiment that NASA has these voyagers because they've been going since 1977 and have given us tremendous amount of data. And now mm-hmm. they're the first ones giving us information on material that's in that interstellar space stuff, mm-hmm. which is pretty neat. They're using, um, I always wonder like they're currently they are, and we can look at the, there's a cool interface for it. Currently Voyager one is 14.73 billion miles from earth, but it's still sending us information. What? So it's it's the DSN, Deep Space Network, which is basically wireless transmission for space. What? <laughs> is what we use. It's, you know those giant, giant satellites you yeah. see in like South America? There's one. You know, there's a whole system of them. Yeah. Those are the ones that allow the Deep Space Network of information. So the that little insane to me. Voyager satellite sends out information and then it, I don't know if it relays to different to satellites satellite. throughout or if it actually just comes down to these DSN satellites on Earth. I'm not sure. But I find it amazing, especially on days uh, that I can't get internet. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> we can talk to this ship 14 billion miles away, but I can't get internet in my house. Yeah. yeah. I'm assuming you have Cox. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> because I don't get anything else out here in my neighborhood. But yeah, the spacecrafts before the before the Voyagers were the Pioneers 10 and 11, and they just had plaques on the side of, of them that show a pulsar map of where our solar system is, which I'll get into. For Voyager, they kind of wanted to take that above and beyond. So they created what is actually a record in a casement that holds, it acts kind of like a time capsule. It holds information of 1977 on it that can be shared by whoever, who el- whoever might find this spacecraft in the future and can decode this thing, they're going to get information from 1977. So obviously the odds of any of that happening are extremely slim, but it's a, just in case somebody finds this, here's a map to who, where we are. So come, so come, <laughs> come find us and take over our world. It's more like, this is where this came from is yeah. what, right, what it, it's meant to be. So this is okay. just a map of where we are. And then the information is also on there or is yes. So okay. this one, the first one, the ones that are on the Pioneer is just the map. This one has, so the case has information on it, and then the record itself has information on it. So the case looks like it's a round disc. They're gold-plated copper uh, is what they're made out of. It's 12 inches 
12 inch record. The case, it looks like a disc with a bunch of information etched onto it. So if we look at what that information is in the upper left hand corner is a plan view of the record that shows an outline of a cartridge that would read it. That cartridge is actually on the spacecraft itself. So if they find the disc, they can actually play it on the spacecraft. It's like an escape room. Yeah, aliens. <laughs> it totally is. It 100% is a totally scientific escape room because the plan of the disc has binary code around it to tell you how quickly it should be played, the speed at which it should be played. And then there's an elevation of the cartridge that points out that the needle needs to go on it. And this the binary for the, how long it should take to play the whole thing so that they know that they're doing it right. Um, underneath that, so that would be the bottom left, is the Pulsar map, which is a bit controversial because it takes, remember it was 1977, so it took 14 Pulsars that we can, that we get information from on Earth. And it shows in binary code what those, what the rate of that pulse is for each of those Pulsars. So if you could then identify those 14 Pulsars and then find the common point in the middle, yeah. that would be where Earth is. Huh. So good in concept. Um, however, since then, and I'm sure even then we knew that there were tons of pulsars out there. <laughs> so finding those four, 14 specific ones is difficult. Mm -hmm. And then apparently pulsars um, over time, over long periods of time, can rotate. And so the pulses that we're hearing now might rotate away from us. Mm -hmm. So that they're not directed towards us and then you wouldn't be able to hear them anyway so the direction changes so even if you did find those 14 you might not be able to hear the pulses in order to know that it's the right one so there's some controversy on whether that would actually ever really point anyone in our direction but because of the changes in those pulsars it could also mean it could also help them date the, the spacecraft as well because those changes happen over time they could say oh look this pulsar is now doing this which means at this point in time was 10,000 years ago when the pulsar was doing that or whatever. So it's a very not specific, a very scientific way of doing it, but not necessarily foolproof way of finding Earth. So even if someone did find it, now we're talking about something the size of maybe this room. I think the disc is about 16 feet Oh, around 20 feet maybe Wait. around. You just said it was twelve inches. Um, I'm sorry, not the not the record, the actual spacecraft Voyager oh, spacecraft. Okay. So you know something that small in the great expanses right. of space, right? And it's out in interstellar space right. now. You know the chances of anything finding it to begin Never with know. are incredibly slim. Yeah. But even if they did, then they've got to figure out this thing, and then they've got to figure out. Right. The pulsar map and if it will even work as it may not because it's 40,000 years in the future. And so it may not oh ever gosh. really send anyone in our direction. I can see. It may have just been, you know, a, this is a nice yeah. thought of yeah. putting ourselves out there, right. you know. I can so. see an alien scientist finding it and becoming obsessed with trying to figure out what it is <laughs> spending their whole life. <laughs> spending their whole life figuring it out uh -huh. just to just to realize it was... Like, oh, that same Earth. planet that we yeah. that we We've did our there. experiment on. <laughs> and then top right shows 
is several four different diagrams that show you how to read the di read the information from the disk because the disk has images on it, uh, meaning it has images that have now been coded into vibrations. I guess yeah. you could say. So as it's if you have it spinning at the right right rate, and then taking that information, and it'll create lines to create images uh -huh. kind of thing. So, so these That's diagrams crazy. are telling, oh yeah, these diagrams are telling you like the speed at which you need to do that, how it needs to draw it, that it should be 512 lines for the image. And then if you get that all tuned up, right, then you get the, it, the first image is a circle. So if you get all that right, your first image should be this image of a circle. And then you could be able to read all the other pictures that are on it. So that diagram is on the cover as well. And then there's a diagram of, in this part, I don't quite understand the two lowest states of the hydrogen atom. And something about it is supposed to give you our basis of time. Like one rotation of the atom is supposed to be one second or something. There's some, I, I'm not sure how that one really plays out. If but anyone the, would get that, but it's supposed to create, to express our version of time. Right. So okay. if, yeah, somehow. Somehow. We don't know how. Don't know. It just does. All right. <laughs> and then the disc itself looks like a record. Um, I think this this particular picture I'm looking at doesn't look like gold, but I think it's just the flash. So the picture had or no, the record has 115 images on it, 90 minutes of music from all around the world, including some Chuck Berry, apparently, from us, because it was 1977. Has sounds of Earth, so waves crashing or animals or nature That's sounds cool. and things and then greetings in 55 different languages and hopefully that would all be played by some alien in the future but like i said like you know there's pushback on why would you send out our a map to find us because no one out there is going to be up to any good really i think it'd be impossible to find us with that information anyway <laughs> here are some of the pictures that are on it so, so the first one being just a circle is the test to make sure mm -hmm. they've got the they're playing it correctly, some um, math equations, and then pictures of our moon and the planets in our system, DNA images, babies, a woman breastfeeding. Weird. Kind this of is not what I was imagining. No. If they're very some of them are very scientific, like showing us showing them what our world is. Yeah. And how we do math is gonna um, share all kinds of information. Right. And then some actual images of like what people or this image scroll up a little bit. It's like the image of a someone kind of leaning over with their hands on their knees. This is blacked out silhouette. And then it has an image of a little gazelle looking animal, which is smaller. And then another one of a kind of seemingly Neanderthal silhouette crouching down with the weapon in his hand. So I think the image is supposed to say that we are hunters. What a weird... And that this is the scale of the, this, human to this human, but that one is the same in writing, right? Even yeah. though it's further away, so it's showing perspective oh. and that this guy's going to hunt. I, now, I know that because I know what the silhouettes are meaning. Would an alien understand that? Right. Probably not. Right. And then images of just people doing, doing things. things or some traffic around, <laughs> around Earth. Um, it's not all of them because they didn't have permission to share all of them. But there's actually a book by Carl Sagan who was, have you heard of Carl Sagan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was leading the committee for this record. Okay. And uh, there's a book by him about everything that went into the record and 
into the approval of all, all the images, all the images that are on it, all the it, songs and everything. Is this the project? Wait, is this the project where he met his wife on? Oh, I don't know. Um, they did meet on a project. I yeah. don't think it was this. Yeah. I thought it was something more important. more recent, <laughs> more important. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but I think that's really all I had. Okay, well, I had a couple questions. So, I mean, I did write what images, but you showed me this second. So. <laughs> The pulsar thing is you were saying how some of them get turned around and they're not always pointed at mm -hmm. Earth. Does that happen naturally or does it happen because a space debris is knocking it off? No, it course? just happens naturally in the course of of whatever time frame. So yeah. so they're constantly just kind of going. Yeah, so it, so so it we're could not be constantly getting 14 directly pointed at us at any given time. It's just we're getting some and not others. But we're talking in like, you know, in 5,000 years, it might change. And we're not talking what? about in 10 years, it might change. Oh. We're talking, you know. So they are currently Currently. Still... the No, actually, they could be one of them. I, I think I read that one of them actually now is not pointed at us. So we're not receiving. Um, you know, some of them might still point at us in 40,000 years. Some of them might change in 5,000 years. Some of them might change in 20,000 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're talking about very large expanses of time, but it is possible for it to happen. And not knowing when someone could possibly find this thing, right? Everything could be different. Even now, you know, as stars move, even now from 1977, the map would be a little bit off mm -hmm. just because all stars just slightly move outward or whatever. So, okay. I can't wrap my head around how information is transmitted. Mm hmm. It's so hard for me. Like, I don't understand how internet works. <laughs> I know we've had this discussion before, but it's so hard for me to wrap my head around um, images and things being transmitted through nothing. Yes. Through nothing. You know, like, yeah. it's not a direct connection. It's just through the it's air. It's through it's information pulses or... It's crazy to me. Yeah. So the pulses that we're getting back... Are the the pulse? They're called pulsars. Yeah. Okay. So the pulsars that are sending information to us. Um, pulsars aren't sending information. They're just sending pulses of energy. So uh, pulsars are um, are basically neut neutron stars. I want to say that are spinning, and as they're spinning, they're just sending pulses of of energy to us at a at a specific rate. What is the point of that? Wait. Oh, it's a neutron star. It's, it's, there's no it, point. It's, it's not. Just, it's something we made. No. Oh. No, pulsars are are. Oh, that's that was my next question. Are they like how are they different from satellites? Okay, so okay, so the the information though, like from Voyager, I I assume it gets relayed because we have so many satellites out there now. I would assume it would get relayed and then relayed back right. to us because it's so far away. Yeah, but generally it's sending out just I guess radio waves at that yeah. point that then just get picked up and right. re read back down to us. So, okay, then my last question was the satellite that is in inter, what did you call it? Interstellar inter space. Interstellar space. And you said that they're sending back information about material that's in interstellar space. Mm -hmm. Do you know what material they have found or like what, if there's anything different? I attempted to open a report <laughs> and could not figure out what I was looking at. I don't know any of these um, words. I think at the moment it's, you know, it takes pictures and sends it back. And then, um, you know, it takes pictures with different 
filters, quote unquote. So how does it take pictures? The camera, it's sending back pictures, yeah. So it took pictures of and video even of Jupiter and Uranus and all that and sends that back. And then it takes pictures with different filters, meaning like where the filters can, different materials will reflect in different ways kind of thing, those type of pictures so that you can say, so like the rings of Saturn, there's some really pretty colored pictures that show that the different rings could be made up of, are made up of different types of materials. Mm-hmm. Let me show you. There, oh, there we go. Galleries of images that Voyager Ooh. took. Jupiter is a gorgeous planet. I, if it weren't so dorky, I would really want a image of Jupiter on my wall. <laughs> um, so these close-ups of Jupiter remind me of rocks that yeah. we find here on Earth. They look like really beautiful like marble. marble. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. This is the the storm, the eye storm. So basically oh. what we're looking at is mostly cloud cover and really? um, dust and things like that. All right, we'll put this website. It's a um, Voyager website through Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. And it has all kinds of information, but it's one of those that you can get deeper into and then you lose your place in how you actually found everything. So here are the pictures of Saturn Ooh. and you see the ones... That looks fake. So some of them I think are called false color and I'm not 100% sure if if they're actually putting color on it yeah. or if it means false color in a way that that's not the color of the entity we've put but a filter to read uh, materials and stuff. So like Saturn ring color variations indicate different chemical compositions Oh, okay. on this one. But so that's not the actual color of the ring. Right. That is that's misleading. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, it's really just gray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, but if there were more light hitting it from the sun, I wonder if there's it's different colors or if it be. is just one color. Yeah. There's Neptune is blue. And then some of the... Does moons. Neptune have a lot of water on it or any water on it? Do we know? I don't know. It would be crazy if it was just like a one giant water bubble. So it's all blue. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, also on this site is so where are they now? Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is funny. But it's actually an interface that allows you to see kind of a rendering of Voyager, but where it is currently in space relative to to us. And but then it also has um, all the other things that are happening in our solar system. So other satellites that we have, other spacecraft that we have out there, it's still loading. I apologize, Meg. I apologize to you. You could click on like Haley's Comet and it gives you information about Haley's Comet and where it is right now. Or there are other satellites as well. And what, like here's New New Horizons that was launched in 2016. It's a flyby, meaning its purpose is to fly by planets and take pictures and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Versus there are some that are specific, like there's a couple out there that are specifically meant to go straight to the sun and do something. Uh, take pictures or tests or whatever. How do they not melt? I think some of them are meant to go as close as possible to get as much information to send back and then are meant to crash into the sun. Yeah, they get as close as they can before melting. Anyway, it's a really cool website, although it's not loading right now, probably because Grayson's using all of our bandwidth <laughs> oh. playing video games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll put a link to it because it's fun to play around fun. with. But yeah, like I said, Voyager 1 is 14 point something billion miles away. Voyager 2 is 12.24 billion miles away, which is pretty crazy. 
And they were launched at the same time or mm -hmm. just at di in different directions or? Yeah, both. And they both have the record on them. Both have copies the same, of the record. The same on. thing. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's super interesting. I like it. Mm -hmm. So we're talking to aliens, kind of. <laughs> we're putting not. information out right. there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is all we have for you guys today. Sorry, it was, was so plenty. long. <laughs> it's all my fault. I'm sorry, but I can't help but read books. And I want to share them all. That's all we got. So right. thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you have anything cool, creepy, or scientific to share with us, you can email us at lastlambstandingpodcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Instagram at lastlambstandingpodcast. And a special thank you to Adam Frischertz for our theme song. Thanks for listening.